Let us pray. Heavenly Father, teach us our deepest needs in Jesus. Amen. So what is your deepest prayer? What is the longing of your heart? Can you put it into words? I mean, on a good day, my public prayers are somewhat organized so that you can follow along. The silent prayers of my soul, not so much. They are often a jumble of images, faces, names, events, emotions, needs, wants. Sometimes nothing more than a gutter, well, garbled, guttered utterance of maybe one or two words. And there are times even I'm not sure what I'm praying for. Which is why I am so thankful that God says, before a word is on your tongue, I know it completely. And also, he says, whenever you don't know what to pray for, the Spirit intercedes for you and groans too deep to understand, except, of course, by God who understands them completely. So did you notice during the pandemic there were churches on both sides of the arguments about masks and worship? Middle East conflict, same thing. People on both sides. All this is just to remind you that the church isn't perfect. Everyone can find a Bible passage to support what they think, but that doesn't mean that they're right. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus prayed for the church to be one, just as he and the Father were one. We haven't done a very good job of that, have we? When people ask what heaven is like, I know they expect me to talk about angels and choirs and harps and endless buffets and streets of gold, but I tend to focus on something far more important. You see, in heaven, you and I will finally respect and honor one another the way that we deserve to be honored and respected as unique and unreproducible miracles of God. We will be of one mind. We will be of one soul. There won't be any divisions or schisms. We will finally be a true community of faith. Original sin isn't very original. It might be the sin that we are born with, but it is also the sin that we choose to embrace and feed our whole life long. We live in a wireless world, but, but many of our beliefs are very hardwired. Uh, we may not know why we believe something. We may not even be able to explain why we believe it, but we know what we believe. I mean, we're, we're sure of that, and we will fight to defend it. There are things we must stand firm on because they are the word and the will of God. And there are other things of adiaphora, meaning things that don't have anything to do with salvation that we can be flexible on. But when we allow our personal beliefs to divide the church, uh, that is original sin in its most basic form. In Romans 12, verse 8, St. Paul says, you know, insofar as it has to do with you, be at peace with everyone. Wow. One of the universal truths is a common enemy often unites a group of strangers. It goes this way. I may not know who you are. I may not even like you, but we both hate the same person. Therefore, now we are family. You know, I can think of a lot of reasons for us to be family, and hate is not on the list. In our lesson today, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians unite against their common enemy, Jesus. The Pharisees believe in heaven. Sadducees don't, which already makes their relationship very awkward. Today, it gets even more awkwarder. Yeah, and I know it's not a word. To this unlikely pairing, we add the Herodians. These are Jews who love and are loyal to Rome. So just when you think you've heard everything, in other words, Jews who don't believe in heaven, now 
We've got Jews who love their Roman captors. They even named themselves after the puppet king, hoping to score some points, which could have been really bad. It's like getting a new girlfriend while your old girlfriend's name is you know, still tattooed on your arm, except the last bunch of kings were Herods, and the next one was probably going to be Herod, so they're not going to have to worry about rebranding anytime soon. This alliance shows you how much they all hated Jesus, how much they were afraid of him. The Pharisees rebel every chance they get against the Romans to protest the high taxes and the heavy-handed control of the church, and they would do anything to get the Romans kicked out of their nation. The Herodians support the high taxes and heavy-handed control. They're always looking for evidence of treason so they can turn those people over to the Roman government. They kind of hope the Romans stay forever. And by the way, both groups consider themselves to be faithful Jews. Now, the one thing they're afraid of is the church, not the building, not the denominations, not the corporation, but the people. See, if the people ever came together over Jesus, it would be really, really bad for the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests. See, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when God used to come down and go for a walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening, that is the definition of the church. It is God and his people in community. Well, God's community is not about power, money, or prestige. It's about faith and love, which is why the Herodians, Sadducees, and Pharisees need to get rid of Jesus, because they want their kingdom to be about power, money, and prestige. Now, the opposite of original sin is imputed righteousness. It's found in Romans chapter 4, verse 22, where Paul says, anything that Abraham did, anything that was good, he was able to do because God imputed righteousness into him. At least that's the word the King James used. Most modern translations say that Abraham's faith was reckoned to or credited to him as righteousness. When God fills us with his word and spirit, it allows us to do what needs to be done as a united community. Matthew 7, 28 says, When Jesus had finished this sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had real authority, not like their scribes. The people loved Jesus because he was binding them together as a single community of faith. He gave them hope. 500 years ago, a German soldier wrote Martin Luther and said he was worried that God wouldn't let him get into heaven because of all the blood that he had shed with his sword. Whether soldiers too can be saved was Luther's response. If you haven't read it, you can get a free PDF online. I, I highly recommend it. Not only did Luther declare soldiers of faith could be saved, but he went on to say, and here's the quote, if there were many such soldiers in an army who think like you, men of faith, who could do anything to them? They would devour the world without lifting a sword. Nay, if there were nine or ten such in a company, or only three or four, who could say these things with a true heart? I would prefer them to all the guns, pikes, horses, and armor. And I would let the enemy come on with all his power for the gospel. The Christian faith is not a jest, nor is it a little thing. But as Christ says in the gospel, it can do all things. But my dear sir, where are those who believe thus and who can do such things? Nevertheless, although the crowd does not do this, we must teach it and know it for the sake of those who will do it, however few they may be. For God's word does not go out in vain, says Isaiah. Lo, it brings some to faith in God. Faith alone binds the church as a community and allows it to do what God needs 
done in this world. We may argue over money, traditions, denominations, and a million other things in the church, but if, as Jesus prayed in the garden, we were to be united in faith, then nothing would dare stand against us. But we're going to have to wait until heaven before that happens. You see, all too often, original sin wins out over imputed righteousness, and the church is crippled by its own lack of faith. The Pharisees and Herodians concoct the perfect trap, and no surprise, it involves money. Money is a point of contention for almost everyone because everyone has an opinion on how the church should spend its money, which is, in their mind, their money. And so when you combine money with paying taxes to Caesar, well, it does sound like the perfect trap. Hey, Jesus, should the church, individually and corporately, pay taxes to Caesar, to, to the Roman government? You know, those people that are pointing their spears at us, those people that won't let us live the way we should live, the, the people that have, well, enslaved us. Notice they don't ask that people should pay their tithes and offerings to support the lavish lifestyle of the church leaders, but whether the church should support the Roman government. You know, the Lutheran church believes in a two-kingdom structure. There is the kingdom of the right hand, which is the government who paves roads, maintains armies, and does all that government stuff. The kingdom of the left hand is the church, which takes care of the souls of the people, worship, sacraments, caring for the lowly, the widows, and the lost. Two kingdoms cannot, nor should they be confused. But St. Paul, 30 years later, notes that there is actually only one kingdom because God knows everyone who leads and either puts them in positions of power or allows them to be in the position of power in order to accomplish what he knows needs to be done. He then goes on to say, this is Paul, not God, that we need to pray for all those leaders, even if we do not agree with them. And then he finishes with this, do not forget, they do not bear the sword. For nothing. Both kingdoms need money to do what they have been asked to do. The government gets their money through taxes. The church gets its money through offerings. The Pharisees and Herodians are not asking if Jews should pay taxes. They are asking if the Jews should pay taxes to the Romans. If Jesus says yes, he has aligned himself with the Herodians and will lose a good portion of his Jewish supporters who are anti-Roman. If he says no, he has aligned himself with the Pharisees and the Herodians will report him to Rome as an enemy of the state. So what is the purpose of money, of wealth, of stuff? Why do you work? How do you determine the value of everything you are and everything you do? I mean, it, it all comes down to how you view and what you view the purpose of your life to be. Most of us do not have such a high moral or ethical value system that we study and pray about everything before we spend even one dime. To, we have to make sure that they are worthy of our money. Oh, it's true. We might stop or maybe just lower what we give to the church because we're not happy about the new carpet or we think maybe the pastor makes too much money. But rarely do we refuse to have our car towed by somebody who has a coexist bumper sticker or abandon our car in the middle of the desert because we're out of gas and the only gas station has a sign in the window that says there is no God. Money divides the church, but it doesn't need to. That's what Jesus tells both the Pharisees and the Herodians. Money is a tool. It is worth nothing unless it is used to take care of one another. Money shouldn't divide the church. In actuality, it should unite it. Conversations about money trap us in a cycle of shame or superiority, about need or greed. Money becomes the lens through which we see ourselves and we see everything around us. 
And the church can become a common enemy that unites individuals and groups who love their money and don't want to give it up to either the church or the government because, well, if they do, it means they're not going to buy all the stuff they want. And this is stuff, by the way, that makes them feel good about themselves and, and sometimes make others feel good about them as well. And so if they don't have that, they feel that they're going to be lesser of a human. So they're trying to find ways not to give money to either group. When Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to him and give to God what belongs to him, it sounds like a cop-out. Yet there's a deeply theological truth that offers us the freedom that we need to live. It's been about 13 minutes, but do you remember my opening comment about your prayers? What is the one thing that you want more than anything else? And how much would it cost for you to obtain it? What if the government suddenly announced that all the leaves on the tree and all the rocks in the road were valid currency? Which means you have everything you need to buy everything you want. But then again, everybody else has also everything they need to buy everything they want. Does money have worth if everyone has all that they want and need? Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. The reason is not because the rich are so wicked that, that God is keeping them out, but, but they become so focused on themselves and constantly needing more money and more stuff in order for them to feel good that they lose sight of community, especially a community of faith whose calling and purpose, by the way, is to take care of one another. Frederick Buechner says the place God calls you to, your vocation, is the place where your deep gladness, the things that make you just feel wonderful, and the world's deep hunger meet. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to us in this story. One of the biggest reasons people don't go to church is because the church, at least in their opinion, is too much about money, and what they really are saying is too much about their money. Most of Jesus' sermons were about money, and for good reason. Not money specifically, but about acquiring stuff. See, think about what the Bible says about money. If you have two jackets, well, you should give one to somebody who doesn't have any. Take care of the widows and the orphans who don't have anyone to take care of them. Feed the poor, care for the sick, love the children. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and questions him and says, what do I got to do to get into heaven? Jesus finally says, well, you know, sell everything you have. Give that money to the poor and then come and follow me. Do you see what God expects of us? He, he doesn't want you to give blindly to the church or the government. He expects you to give from the heart so that all that you give takes care of others. And there are rules. If a widow has a child, the child is expected to take care of his parent, not the church. If someone won't work, well, the community is not obligated to take care of them. See, you have what you have to make a difference in the community. You aren't expected to surrender at all and move into a monastery. You are expected to take what you have and prayerfully use it to care for those whom God has placed a passion in your soul for. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and give to God what is God's. Streets, air traffic controllers, law enforcement, all necessary. But so are food banks, shelters, houses of worship, pastors, people that can pray with you and for you, and when either the government or the church, by the way, fails to do what they have been called to do with your money, they need to be called into accountability. It's as simple as that. 
And until we get to heaven, though, we're never going to agree exactly on how either the government or the church should spend its money. And so there needs to be some grace and a lot of prayer cover on that. But this, this is really all about you. You have been called to find your passion, your gifts, your abilities, so that you know that you have been called to make a difference in this world. Romans 13.6 says that you should pay taxes. It's very clear. Go ahead and look it up. 1 Corinthians 14 says that you should use your passion and gifts to build up the church. And by the way, that doesn't mean the building, the organization, or the incorporation. Now, original sin and imputed righteousness will battle over how much and to whom and why until Jesus takes us home. There's no doubt about that. But 16 chapters earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, you know where your treasure is? That's where your heart will be. Takes us back to what our greatest desire and prayer is. See, notice how these are coming together. Money and taxes and who we give it to or who we keep it from really is a window to our soul. Money can unite us instead of dividing us. And my prayer is that you will discover your calling, where you get to use what you have to change lives and to make a difference. And instead of asking about whether you should pay taxes or not, you give thanks for all the things that your taxes do while keeping an eye on the government. And then you look for ways to use everything else you have to not only bring a smile to somebody else's face, but also to yours. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.